Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Mark Walsh. He is an embodiment coach and he was the initiator of the hugely successful embodiment conference. Uh, it's a delight to have you here on the show. Welcome, Mark. Pleasure. So let's uh, wind it back. Uh, I've, I've heard some of this story on, online, but you know, where did you get sort of turned on to this idea of embodiment? Yeah, well, I always say that you know, my own failure was the failure of Western civilization generally, which for all its amazing achievements, uh, privileges the cognitive. So we think that learning about things, being clever, having high IQ, that's what matters. And I was raised by school teachers very much with that in mind, a lot of books around, which was great. But what I found was it didn't cover all the bases of being human, to use a word from your podcast. And I realized there was a whole bunch of essentially skill sets that I didn't have uh, when I first started you know, into relationships and trying to look after my health. And, you know, when I became a leader in different fields, I was like, hang on a minute. You know, my version of stress management was being alcoholic. It's just drinking and taking drugs. And I was like, I, you know, I went, hang on a minute. There's got to be more. And when I went to university to study psychology, um, I thought, you know what, I'm going to study a martial art. There's various practical reasons for that. And I thought to myself, um, what, like not getting beat up? <laughs> but I was also selling drugs. So, um, you know, <laughs> okay. that, that was part of it. There is that. <laughs> and uh, apparently my lawyer says I can say that now. The police very rarely prosecute so long down the road. Um, it was soft drugs anyway. But it's... Um, I walked into Aikido school, which is a Japanese martial art. And I just had this moment. I looked at it and it was, it was beautiful, but it was sort of touching at a deep level. And I, I said to myself, I need this. I saw the discipline. I was very undisciplined, very chaotic. Um, you know, I wasn't well. I saw healthy people. I wasn't a leader. I saw leaders. I was stressed. I saw relaxed people, not only relaxed, but relaxed while people were trying to attack them. This is incredible. And, um, it's a beautiful thing to see. And it, it struck me. And then I just dedicated myself to martial arts. But at a certain point, I realized that it wasn't special to Aikido, that there's this area we could call embodiment, which includes yoga, meditation, even improv comedy, conscious dance, uh, body therapy. There's a whole field that existed that tunes into the wisdom of the body, sees the body as more than a brain taxi and, you know, sees the body as part of who we are and we can develop ourselves and that's very different than reading about something in the same way as if someone said they'd read a lot of books on kissing, you wouldn't, or read a lot of books on playing <laughs> tennis even, you wouldn't yeah. say, okay, this person's great at tennis or kissing. Um, and I think, you know, leadership, most business skills are like that. Right, right. So, so it was... <laughs> so it started as a way to you protect yourself against rivals in the drug dealing world. I need. I was a drowning man in need of a psychological raft. You know, right. well, it's extraordinary. Yeah, that you found it in that context. Yeah, yeah. And as I said, I then developed. I loved Aikido. I added other things to that. I kind of realised I'm a bit of a generalist. I kind of wondered how the field fits together. Um, and then I realized you could do it in other areas. So I got involved with uh, in what's called embodied peace building, using these practices in peace work and humanitarian work globally. So that was a pretty interesting few years. And then, so, oh, yeah, give us a story from that time. You're like, who did you work with? I don't know the war stories. You know, like, did you get shot at? And what happened? It was, uh, here's a fun one. Okay. So I was in a Middle Eastern country for 24 hours where. We were in the Hilton in this capital city of this beautiful Middle Eastern country. And um, I was with my boss and my job was to sort of look at people and really just figure out what was going on. Normally people get quite uncomfortable when I, when I say this. 
It's an embodiment skill, really, sort of body reading or empathy is another part of it. And I, I realized some, some shady stuff was going on. And also I realized that my boss almost accidentally had someone killed because we set up, my boss said, oh, we've got a problem with this um, uh, guy into sports stuff. Uh, you know, can you fix it? And this, this uh, government minister who was there, who went to university with this guy and owed him favors, apparently from years back, uh, said, he looked at his wife who looks like Cleopatra and he just says, um, I'll sort that out for you. And then the dinner continues and it's very pleasant, civilized, more wine, you know, but I caught it and I went, oh, that wasn't good. So I said, I need the toilet. Don't you need the toilet? And I said to my boss, who I won't name, let's call him John. And he went, no. I went, yeah, you do. And because you've got a weak bladder because you're old. He went, oh, yeah. And so you've got, he cottoned on and went to the toilet. And I said, you know, that guy's going to have him killed for us. You need to fix that. And that was an example just of catching something right. which there in the moment. I mean, that's one of the more extreme stories. I can give you more, but... Um, well, yeah, that's... You know, that's that, yeah. A snapshot which shows how being tuned into your own body and other people's can be very helpful. Right, and so you, you were tuned in to such an extent that you felt you could determine the intent there when he was speaking to his wife. Yeah, text, there was other things, but like in terms of having a sense of it and it, it it transpired that that was definitely a possibility on the table if not so yeah it wasn't what we wanted so no. um, different cultural context is part of it you know dealing with sort of a government minister pre-arab spring um you know this is a very different context in the uk so yeah. um, cultural context is part of embodiment the personal context uh you know being tuned into yourself you know i was doing a class on sensitivity last night and we we tend to think of sensitivity as a problem and it can be if you don't have enough self-regulation. So anyone who works in a fast-paced, stressful business environment needs to get their shit together. They need that ability to, you know, I was talking to some traders yesterday, some cryptocurrency traders dealing with a lot of money. And I said, what, when do you make all your bad decisions? And they're like, oh, when we have FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, when we have, um, uh, when you overtrade, when you have, you know, you get stressed or you get panicky, you know, uh, poker players call it being on tilt. And it turns right. out the most damaging thing to even hypercognitive traders is their emotions. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and, you know, being able to manage and regulate that is a key embodiment skill. Uh, I, I, the story I talked about was sort of being able to be aware of it in others. Obviously, that starts with being able to be aware of yourself. So since yeah. is going, well, how am I right now? Like I'm noticing I'm a bit rushed this morning. Maybe that's not ideal for an interview. I'm feeling that in my body right now as I talk to you because I've practiced this stuff enough that I can notice my breathing while talking and notice my gut and everything happening without having to sort of go and meditate or do yoga, which is great. I love that stuff, but it's not very practical for busy people. You know, if you're in a car or you're in a business meeting, you can't just go do 20 minutes of yoga, you know? Right. Let alone an hour. So, um, having skills you can use in the flow of life very practically that are taken from yoga, meditation, martial arts, dance, uh, and applied, you know, people that wear a suit on a daily basis became my work. After the humanitarian stuff, I went, hang on a minute, I'm tired of living out of bag. I'm tired of eating bad food and getting shot at. Let's go somewhere. Uh, let's go back to England. And who's got money? Right, business people. Great. So I had to learn that world, which was like a whole other culture to learn. And that was, you know, that was 15 years ago. And now I've, I'm very used to wearing a suit and working in business and speaking that particular language. Right, right. And what were the, okay, so let's talk about that because there will be a lot of people sort of working in businesses now. Like, wh what were your first forays into the business world and how were you, how were you starting to help people? Yeah, well, stress management. That was an obvious one. I mean, a lot of embodiment techniques are really helpful. Stress, leadership, a bit of team building. 
a bit of communication stuff. Um, but probably leadership and stress management, resilience were the two biggest. And I think my first gig actually was for a charity and a friend invited me in. I did a few exercises and I think people liked that it wasn't PowerPoint and they, you know, found it a bit weird because I had to stand up and move around. But I deliberately sort of took out all the weird Aikido words and didn't make anyone do anything to anything too touchy feely. You know, also in my experience of martial arts and war zones and stuff like that, business people normally, I, I always say, look, just give it a try. If you don't like it, don't, you don't have to believe me, but you know, who's stressed? Great. Who would like less stress? Great. Do you want to give something a try to reduce your stress? Yeah, let's give it a go. We do a two minute exercise and afterwards they go, oh, I feel better. You know, we do a centering exercise and we say, okay, put your feet on the ground, relax your belly. I can do this now while I'm talking, you know, soften your jaw. <sighs> and then they go, oh, I'm a bit less stressed. And I think, okay, let's stay, let's imagine they're traders. Would you do trades better from this place or from your panicky place you're in when you walked in late? And I said, oh, probably from this place, as long as I've still got my edge. I'm like, yeah, you won't lose your edge. Okay, great. So do you want to practice this every day and then we'll see what happens to your numbers? And, you know, come back in a week. If your numbers change, then we'll, we'll talk again. And I'll charge you a shitload of money. So, um, <laughs> joke's over. Uh, yeah. Well, it's also part of your story, Mark, because I think that you've, you know, you've found a way to make a business out of this stuff, which so many people struggle with, right? Like, you, how is it that you've combined this sort of acumen and all the woo-woo and made it work in a business? I mean, I'm a working class community. Martial arts is very practical. Humanitarian work is actually very pragmatic, full of like military type people. And um, so that's sort of my nature to be quite pragmatic. And I've had that practice and that experience. The other thing is like, why would you not be pragmatic? You know, like don't waste people's time. Don't talk bullshit. And like, like that's, that's a crime. Um, so if you're pragmatic, if you're really doing helping people with practical things, then you can sell that. <laughs> and I did have to learn the marketing skills. Like I wasn't trained and do an MBA and it wasn't trained in business. No one in my family run a business. So it's quite weird. When I started a business, my family were like, what? And everyone else was a teacher or a soldier or a crazy person. And, um, you know, it was, um, it, it was a skill set to learn, but I just looked at like learning a language, learning a culture. And I, I, I'm most people in the alternative world are horrible at business, horrible. So you just have to have, you know, you, you just need one eye to rule in the land of the blind kind of thing. <laughs> right. I ended up teaching ethical marketing to a lot of my students because they're, they're just not very good at it. And they always want to help with that. And I, it's not my passion. Embodiment's my passion, but I've got a talent for it. So I sort of add it a little bit on to the end of things. Right, right. That's interesting. And how have you, well, let's talk about that a bit because, you know, I think there will be people perhaps interested in this ethical marketing question. Like what are the, some of the principles you use on a, on a, on a daily basis when you're marketing, you know, your, I mean, your wares? It's the whole course. But I mean, the basics would be to understand what marketing is. So if you frame marketing as sort of something evil people do to sell more shit, then you're not going to get anywhere. But if you frame it as, and that can be that, and we need to acknowledge that it can be that and, and separate out the good from the bad according to your own values. So that's the first thing I do. We call it Jedi and Sith marketing from Star Wars. It's like good versus bad marketing. Um, so we separate it out and say, right, you don't have to do that stuff, which is a relief to people. What could we do? Um, and I say, well, if, if marketing is just letting people know how you can help them, then what are the parts of that? Okay, who are the people you're letting know? Okay, how do you let them know? You see channels of communication. You're building trust over time. Um, you're letting them know how you can help them. Uh, that's benefits. So what are the benefits you're letting them know about? So if you learn target niching, benefits, and have some kind of a channel for that where you can build and sustain relationships, you know marketing. Well, I can teach right. marketing power. It's not that hard to be okay at marketing. And people who's a yoga teacher, so they don't need to be great at it. They just need to be okay. 
You know, it's not, I don't want to spend my life marketing. So, you know, I want to spend my life teaching and doing embodiment. So um, it's, 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 it's a hygiene thing. It's like learning to drive if you live in the countryside or learning French if you live in France. It's just something to learn. It's no big deal. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder if that part of that is, well, certainly my, my blocks with marketing have been um, to get to that benefits point. Oh. you've got to have like total confidence in your own ability that you can give them those benefits. Right. So it becomes a self-esteem thing. Yeah. Though I wouldn't rely on your self-esteem for marketing. I think much better is to rely on your experience. So you should be nervous when you start because you don't know what you're doing. Now, how many you've interviewed loads of people on here, right? So you're not yeah. about podcasting because no. your, your confidence is grounded in experience. I can see it. Right. And that conveys to me, conveys trust to me as a guest in the same way as it would be for a customer or whatever. Um, so I think as long as your experience is, is grounding your claims, then there's no problem. Like I've helped that many people with stress management. Like, like I'm not nervous when I start a workshop or having trained thousands of people because I go, look, I, I've trained thousands of people. Most of them liked it. You'll probably like it. Let's give it a go. Well, what's there to be nervous about? Right, right. So it's coming from experience, not like I'm good, right? It's I've done these things and I've deceived these people. Yeah, because if you focus on yourself, you get more nervous. I mean, being nervous is kind of a form of narcissism because you are kind of focused on yourself and not your client who you should be focused on to serve, right? So generosity and service actually makes you less nervous too. That's one of my little tricks um, in that, you know, where, where is your orientation? It shouldn't be to what other people think of you. Like I'm, I take off self-view when I'm Zoom because I don't, you know, I don't want to be constantly looking at my hair and thinking I look pretty and wondering what you think about me, Richard. I'd rather just be trying to give the best interview I can. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good tip. Um, something else I wanted to touch in. Well, hang on. I just Let's wind back a little bit, right? Because we talked about embodiment and there's the personal context and there's a cultural context, something I hadn't considered before. Like a lot of my sort of, when I think of the word embodiment, I'm thinking about my body and can I connect to all the parts of my body? It's okay. interesting you brought in cultural context, but let's just like expand the definition a bit of embodiment. Like what, yeah, how, do you, how do you see it? Well, thanks for not asking me that. First of all, that's normally the first question. Um, so embodiment, umbrella term for arts, which deal with the body, but as part of who we are. So mindfulness is paying attention to the body. Embodiment includes that, but also includes developing ourselves through the body. So it's awareness and choice or awareness and change, awareness and influence with others. Um, so it's an umbrella term. You can think of it as a type of intelligence with different skill sets. And I kind of actually walked through some of those earlier, like self-regulation and yeah. empathy and things like influence, those kind of things, self-awareness. They're the four main ones. Um, um, and, you know, simple definition would be the subjective view of the body. So we could get very philosophical about what it is to be a subject. The body is I, not it. So generally, a, a general cultural background in the Western world would be to see the body more or less as an object, which doesn't really make sense because you're very upset when you're, you lose your arm because it's part of you, right? You understand that it's not really about if someone's tall or thin or in shape or whatever. That's the body is object still. It's not about if you're dieting or whatever, but how you live in your body. We all... A dog has an intuitive sense of this. You know, I met a cat on the street last night and the cat was like, can I trust you? Are you safe? Will I let you stroke me? You know, kids have a very intuitive sense of this, that they understand that when they see someone, they're seeing life history, they're seeing uh, a disposition. You know, we used to call it character, a very old fashioned word, but I think it's a nice word. You know, we're looking mm. at character when we look at people's posture and breathing. We're not just looking at... A, you know, we're not looking at a mechanical device that transfers their brain around. I mean, your nervous system is totally distributed. It's not just in your head. <laughs> right, right. 
So that's that's part of it. But then you mentioned earlier cultural context. So how does that how does that link in? We're always embodied in our environmental, cultural, and situational and relational context. So let's break that down. So uh, we grew up in, I guess, the UK as well, Richard. Are you yeah, grew- I'm. Yeah, I'm currently just north of Cambridge. I grew up uh, near me, here as well. Me too. Whereabouts? I'm in a place called Water Beach, which is just a little bit north of Cambridge. Paris, and I grew up in Somme. So really. Oh wow. Okay. Close. That's that's the middle of nowhere. If anyone's listening, it's like the Alabama of England. <laughs> so there's a particular embodiment to place, and we can't break it down by a country. Like the Fens region there has its own particular yeah. embodiment. It's sort of for walking on the swamps, you know, um, of, of East Anglia. So there are different embodiments based on different locations, and the, the, the physical environment affects that. Like we've all walked into a cathedral and felt uplifted or got into a cave or a a cellar and felt kind of denser. We've all enjoyed being in the woods and felt more relaxed because we're sort of eco-regulated as well as self-regulated and co-regulated. We're also in a relational context. Right. E- so, to hang on, just, just to find, so eco-regulated, self-regulated, co-regulated. What, so is that presumably the others around us? Yeah, yeah. So we're nervous systems designed, we're social animals designed to interact. So assuming someone, like in this situation, basically friendly situation, right? It's relaxing. It's pleasant. We like other people. That's why lockdown's hard. That we go crazy without other people. Solitary confinement is a form of torture for a reason. It's outlawed by the UN, right? Because it's... We- yeah, have you seen those photos online of the, of the women in, um, in, in care homes, right? Like the before and after lo- lockdown. It's horrific, right? Imagine that it negatively impacts people's well-being hugely. And you know, I'm not an expert on the virus and COVID, so I don't speak about that. But I can speak about co-regulation, which is that we need each other. We absolutely mm. need social interaction, preferably movement together. Most cultures dance and sing together. You know, that's, you know, most of the African cultures I've been to just do that normally every day. Even Southern European cultures are much better at eating together, socialising. You see all the grandmothers with the grandchildren out in the streets in Spain and Portugal, you know, Greece, places like that. Um, so it's actually weird what we're doing in Northern Europe. It's a weird experiment, and COVID has just made that experiment more extreme. So we're co-regulated. And you know, people in business need to get this, that your team's performance is really based on sort of how much they feel they belong and how safe they feel and how much they like each other. There's a few factors. And if that's not there, people are in that fight or flight response where they're just not operating at their best. I mean, that's not a good state. It makes you stupid, mean, and uncreative scientifically proven that's not an opinion yeah it's very easy to prove yourself you can I, think about last time you made a mistake were you stressed you probably were yeah mm. last something mean were you stressed you probably were last time you were stuck for ideas probably stressed like this don't believe me this is most people's experience where do you have your best ideas where do you have your best ideas richard bet i can guess shower of course why you're moving you're relaxed you're feeling your body okay yeah. so and you're also physically grounded. I read, did some reading on that. We've, we've had a ground, couple of grounding experts on the show. And that's one of the times you're grounded in life because you've got water directly to the earth. Most common response, shower or walking in the woods. Yeah. Right. Embodiment factors. So we're regulated by the environment, of course, as well. So, you know, I go for a walk in the park every day. That's a good thing. You don't have to be woo-woo to believe this. You know, the Japanese are into their forest bathing and stuff, but it, most people can feel it. You just feel more relaxed just walking along Brighton Seafront than you do through Brighton City Centre, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, co-regulation, eco-regulation, self-regulation, all important factors. We're always embodied in relationship. So me and you are having a – this is an interview, right? So you're not the same when you're not podcasting as when you are. Right. So if I spoke yeah. to my 
up like this while we're having dinner, it'd be a bit weird because there's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a context, right? Yeah, yeah. I meant all cultural, you know, how English I'm being right now, how Irish I'm being. That's also in my cultural context. I've got an Irish background, intergenerational Irish trauma I was working with the other day. You know, there's lots of stuff going on. And my life's work has been to pick it apart, to sort of put all the pieces out on the table, to find experts. Like when we did the conference, we found experts in all these different fields, you know. Uh, I trained my, you know, I wrote a couple of books on this kind of stuff. If people want to more, you know, I'm speaking quickly and it's fairly random podcast, but this, you know, it's laid all out very neatly exercises to develop each skill set and um, mapping this stuff because it's sort of intuitive, but it's not well mapped in a clear way. And in my own life, my own journey has just been to just get better at this stuff. You know, I'm not a natural at this. I'm a very heady person. Right, right. You mentioned trauma, inter- intergenerational trauma. And that's one of the things I pre- appreciate about following your work is that, you know, you, you put an emphasis on trauma. And for me, it's, you know, the most, the most bang for I, buck I get in terms of any self-work is, is trauma release and healing from trauma. Like, bar, bar none, it's given me the ben- biggest benefits in my life. So the fact that you highlight that, I think, is really important. Yes, it's a fashionable subject, and I think rightly so in a way, because it, it's the sort of Western world's contribution to embodiment. You know, most of the practices of embodiment come from Asia, you know, Japan, China, places like that. While there are indigenous trauma practices, for sure, about ritual and things like that, the modern trauma field is quite Western. And I, I think this, it wasn't around, you know, in the time of Freud, it definitely wasn't around 200 years ago. It wasn't, if you look at how they treated, you know, World War I traumatized people, we have come a long way, you know, in 100 years, which is good. Um, and it's, you know, trauma's sort of become a bit overused. It's become a bit of a weapon to sort of wield at people sometimes. The downside when it gets a bit overdone, you know, I'm traumatized. No, you're just upset, darling, calm down, you know. And um, it, that overwhelm of trauma that leads to the making more permanent of the fight-flight response. So that would be a definition of trauma, a very rough and ready one, that you, there's a sense of overwhelm or of threat to integrity of self. Um, and you are a lifelong more integrity of self is in the manual. And in that point, you close down. You go from the normal yeah. fight or flight into a shutdown, a freeze. Uh, there's a whole neuroscience of this. People can look up Stephen Porges' work, for example, uh, look up the science behind it. And, you know, once you're stuck a little bit in that state of either freeze or fight or flight, we might call that hyperarousal. That's not good. It makes, I'll give you an example, just there's the day-to-day stuff. And then there's the extreme stuff, you know, there's the flashbacks and the, you know, but you don't have to have that to have what's called little T trauma, sort of trauma, but not necessarily from a big car, car accident or rape or something. And the little T traumas can just make us like a bit irritable or like as a manager, you know, I was, I was less patient than I could have been. And, you know, when I did some trauma healing, all of a sudden my employees started saying, oh, you're a bit easier to get on with. Right. My, like you're a bit easy to connect with, you know, because trauma is toxic to relationships of all kinds. And it doesn't mean it's not a death sentence, right? We can do healing. There's great modalities out there like SC. I know you had Peter Levine on and TRE. You know, there's lots of great modalities out there that I rate highly. Um, but it's, um, it's a journey. And I, you know, I just encourage anyone who thinks they might have trauma to have a look at it. And that healing journey is really, really worthwhile, even if you're not, you know, like a NAM vet having flashbacks or something. You don't have to be like that bad to, to, to heal. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. But there's also so the, the healing aspect and something I know you talk about is, is being trauma aware, right? Yeah. So what, what do you mean by that? And how does that work? Yeah, so being trauma aware means you know signs and symptoms, but you're not trying to do therapy. So yeah. I was going to employ some of the day and I can see they just look like they had a lot of trauma in their system. And I thought this could be difficult. And then they started getting very defensive, which is quite typical. So they weren't very open to feedback. 
but I was trauma aware they were in a certain pattern at that point. So rather than saying, hey, I'm your boss, take the fucking feedback, you know, instead of doing that, I kind of was like, okay, this is what's going on here. They're not able to hear me right now. They're just not able to take it on. Um, trauma aware with my students. So there's certain things we do around consent and something called calibration, which is um, a principle of how much intensity to use in any yoga or martial arts class, for example, or when I'm teaching business people, uh, business coaches, I teach a lot and teach them to be very safe in that way. So I sort of assume anyone I'm working with is a relatively robust adult, but you can't assume they don't have any trauma. Yeah. So it's better to act carefully and systematically according to a set of principles that will mean whether they're massively traumatized or not at all you're still doing safe embodied work yeah <clears throat> that resonates i remember a very hardcore yoga teacher once was trying to force me into this particular <laughs> position and it was right in the middle of me doing some really like intense trauma work and right. i literally i just had to storm out of the of the yoga therapy and ended up like in literally a ball of tears in the in the changing room like i you know it just triggered me massively right into this like this open wound and <laughs> uh and the guy came out he's like i'm sorry i'm sorry was, you you get back in there like pull yourself together and it was just like the antithesis of being trauma aware and it, sometimes the wellness coaches are the least trauma aware it seems Sometimes they have their own trauma and that's part of it. Sometimes they've just not been educated. Sometimes, you know, they've grown up in these slightly bullying sort of guru cultures that come from India or whatever, and that's their tradition. You know, most of the major yoga founders in the Western world were abusers, physically or sexually. And, you know, most of them. Like, that's a shocking fact. And you can go on and Google this if you want to Google the big names. Uh, so you don't get a lawsuit. I won't name them, but Google them. You'll find them. And, um, you know, that has been, unfortunately, some of the heritage there. And that's disembodying. So something that can look like an embodied practice, like martial arts or yoga, could be the opposite. Even meditation could be the opposite. It's, it's if you're violating people, if you're forcing them to too much intensity too quickly, not respecting your boundaries in this case, you know, that's just teaching you to be a victim. It's the opposite yeah. of embodies people. So it's very sad to me, and I'm quite fierce about this with my students. Like, it's really like, guys, come on, you know, we can do better than this. And, and the embodiment world is learning. Like, we're way more trauma aware than we were 10 years ago, way more. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. So, I, you know, and I've, I've used a, a, a real, you know, an extreme example there, but you're saying as well, this can be brought into businesses and just in general interactions, you're spotting signs. Yeah, you know. for General management, general communication, intimacy, definitely in relationships, absolutely critical to understand for a, a good, you know, if you want a nice sex life, you know, you want a functioning marriage or whatever. Uh, child rearing, I've got colleagues who use it in child rearing a lot. I've worked with a lot of kids and it's definitely a useful thing to be able to spot and be aware of. And just anyone who teaches anything, it's like, are people in that learning zone? You know, are they overwhelmed or are they bored, right? Generally in the modern world, it's overwhelmed, but sometimes bored. And it's like, do you, can you keep people in that sweet spot where there's a little activation, but you're nowhere near overwhelm and trauma? So I think, you know, if, as a manager, I want to do that too, right? I want my team in that right level of activation so they can perform well. So they can, um, you know, you can think of it as like green light, yellow light, red light, you know? So green light is like they're calm, they're relaxed, rest and digest mode. We don't talk about rest and digest, you know, we talk about fight or flight. But that's where I want my team most of the time. And then sometimes when we're hustling, you know, we've got a sales deadline or whatever, I want them in yellow mode. Yellow mode is, come on, wake up, pay attention, let's get on with it, right? But it's not traumatized. You're in that flow state maybe of intensity, but with the challenge matching the skill level. And you can't live there, but it's a good place to go when you have a sprint, you know. And I'd never want them in the red zone, which is overwhelmed and freaked out and, you know, going to burn out and I'm going to have to get new employees and my churn rates. I mean, just from a business point of view, it makes no sense. You know, their performance goes down and I have to... 
get new employees and then the discretionary effort goes down. Otherwise, it makes no sense, aside from just being compassionate. So, um, yeah, that would be trauma-sensitive business management, we could say. Right, yeah, because you push people too much into the red side and all, all of their traumas are going to start potentially getting activated, right? And stop learning, they'll stop performing, they'll freeze up. They're not, they can't even hear you as a manager. Like, you're speaking, they're like, just frozen, you know? So if, if, if people are too freaked out and they lose their creativity, they just go back to their oldest patterns, which are, you know, most not helpful. They argue with each other, so that takes time and energy. You know, they get irritated. We've all done this. We've all been at work and got mm-hmm. irritable because we're tired and overworked, like, you don't have to be traumatized. You can just release, you can just reduce your baseline to get into yellow and orange. Well, I had a fairly busy morning at work, you know, working in the office and doing managerial stuff, not embodiment stuff, really. And, you know, I'm kind of going into that yellow zone a little bit just from busyness. Uh, and now, you know, luckily as an embodiment teacher, I can spot that and go, right, it's lunch break next. Take a full lunch break, have time to eat, go for a walk outside, talk to your wife. You know, I can do all the regulation stuff to get me back into the green if I'm going to sustain this till you know, the rest of the week. <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting, you've touched on the three lenses of everybody went there, right? Go for a walk, right? That's the eco-regulation. Talk to your wife. That's the co-regulation and the self-regulation, right? Checking in with yourself. Whatever, right? But like even just, you know, spending one moment feeling my feet in the middle of a meeting. You know, for people that are in a meeting and they, they haven't got time to go to yoga, relax the belly. Sit up straight, but not tense. You know, no one's going to have a go at you for that. You just look, you just look better. You know, feel your feet on the ground. <laughs> Even sigh very gently under your breath. Like, yeah. Let your peripheral... Tracks as I get now. Right now, right now. Yeah. yeah. The per- belly stuff I do a lot, but the sighing I've not come across. Yeah, let your peripheral vision open up so it's not just staring mm. at a laptop so you can mm. see the whole room again. No one yeah. you doing that. So I yeah. talk about the awareness, breath, the eyes, because they're all very non- in, non-obtrusive if you're driving or in a meeting or whatever. So... Um, you know, it's great. I do yoga and meditation as well. I meditate this morning. It's good. That's good for changing your baseline. But in the moment, right. state, we call them centering. And we've got a YouTube and they put in my name and centering. They'll get loads of free videos on, you know, different centering techniques, like quick centering, slightly longer centering. So that centering is really, it's not the be all and end all. You know, it's like you need to do trauma work and other stuff. But the centering is one of the quick wins I teach in business. Every time I do a workshop, that's like top quick win. Yeah. I think this is important as well that we don't, you know, you're easing people into this path often, aren't you? You're not sort of marching in, okay, guys, let's do some trauma release, right? You're starting with really simple stuff. You've got to have some foreplay, Richard. Come on. (laughs) Meet people where they're at, right? Speak people's language. Talk about ROIs or KPIs or whatever it is, you know, KFCs, you know, talk about whatever. And um, know people's language, dress the part. Don't waif in like a hippie who's been dancing five rhythms for the last five hours. You know, walk in solid and strong. Tell them, here's what's on offer. This is what you can get from it. Do you want to give it a try? And you know, only very un- you do still get 10% utterly unreasonable arms crossed bugger off HR sent me here people, but 90% are going to give it a crack. You know, soldiers, doctors, lawyers, politicians. I work with everyone. For a few years, I was deliberately taking any job for free if it was with a new demographic. So I've right. Worked- countries with almost every profession you could imagine dentists doctors lawyers you name it because i would deliberately try and i was trying to say to myself i want to prove that this can be done with anyone in any country you know when you work kids and japanese business people and you know i work with russian gay people i've worked in a circus in ethiopia you know once you work (laughs) with your culture you sort of go okay this stuff works right tell us about the circus in ethiopia mark 
It was fun, man. That was fun. So um, it was back in my humanitarian days. I was traveling the world doing Aikido stuff. And actually, I was doing a peace project in Cyprus with the United Nations that brought together people from warring countries. So it was like Serbs and Americans, and there was Iraqis and Israeli, you know, Americans and Israelis and uh, Palestinians and, you know, Greeks and Turks, obviously. And there's this wonderful peace project using embodiment because if we're speaking from a place of stress, we're not going to have a good conversation. So, if you, so embodied work around peace is to help people regulate so they can actually talk and listen. Yeah. Um, so I was there and there was a guy from Ethiopia there and he was kind of cool. And I liked his style and we became friends. And he said, oh, I'm the first person to ever do Aikido in East Africa. And, you know, one visiting professor had given him two classes or something. And he said, will you come and teach us, you know, live with, live with us? And I, there was no money in it, but I just wanted an adventure. So I said, look, if you can get someone to fly me there and my living accommodation, you know, three meals a day, I'll do it for free for three months. And I went out there and it was you know, some charity paid for me and it was a wild ride. You know, I lived with the circus and they were doing Aikido for themselves and for HIV awareness. And they were using it for street kids and in all sorts of cool ways. And uh, that was with my friend Testify Teclu, who's now in California. If you're out there, Testify, salam no them. So uh, <laughs> that was Amharic. So, um, yeah. Did you learn any circus tricks? I uh, can just about do a handstand, which the yogis like, but no, um, they, it was incredibly depressing. I was surrounded by these incredibly muscle, muscly, slightly underfed young guys who were incredibly lean and strong, could do all sorts of crap. But, um, I, you know, I did my job. I taught Aikido. So, um, yeah, now there's a thriving Aikido community all over East Africa. I was one of the first wow. to, to be involved. Brilliant. Um, that, that remind, I spent a bit of time in Tanzania, which is just south of Ethiopia. Okay, teaching yeah. volleyball i created uh, one of the first uh yeah. volleyball courts actually in our corner of east africa it was quite fun the first time right it feels fun it feels fun so i mean that yeah. was back in my adventure days it's nice to have like crazy experience to draw on you know when i'm working with soldiers or whatever you know i met my yeah. wife, wife working in the ukraine with the military around trauma and with therapists working with the military so the gay community in russia is really interesting i've been involved with them for a while you know it's a very different group and they have kind of a rough time of it. And, uh, and then, you know, the business people, the high-level business people, you know, I have the Russian oligarch clients who pay for me to do the gay work. They don't know that's what they're doing, but they're subsidizing it, basically. So, it's, um, you know, like, I, like the, I like the breadth of it. And I like, it's like the conference. I like the breadth of embodiment, you know? Right, yeah. So, so you're, a, you're clearly a man who likes adventure. I do, I do. These days, I'm, you know, a boring middle-aged man. But, um, you know, I don't go anywhere that makes my mum or my wife worry these days. But um, it was nice to have that. I think in your 20s, you know, you should do some crazy shit, you know? I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know we've only got a few more minutes left here, Mark. Um, but, uh, you know, I've appreciated the chat here. Is it, is there, are there any topics, you know, salient uh, around embodiment, uh, that we've not touched on that you think is important for people to understand? It depends who they are. Um, I think we've covered the main points that self-awareness raising, self-regulation, empathy, social connection, social regulation, the environmental piece is important. We haven't talked much about leadership, but obviously everything we've said applies to leaders in terms of being, you know, having that special something, that charismatic part, the part you can't learn from a book or from an MBA. And, you know, I meet business leaders like, hello, I'm your manager. Welcome. <laughs> really? You're not going to inspire anyone, mate. You know, um, having fun with it is really important. I'm a big, some people with embodiment take it very seriously. I, I like to play with it because play is part of embodiment. You know, like kids are embodied in that way. And, um, you know, I just really encourage people to pick a practice, you know, find a yoga class you like or a meditation class you like, find one that 
you know, meet some of the kind of ethical things we've been talking about. And um, if, you know, if you're a busy business person, even just a little centering a few times a day, something like that, you know, one minute, three times a day, that's not going to, it's not going to break, break, you know, make you less efficient. In fact, the opposite. Yeah. Sometimes I give my business clients practices they can do while walking from the tube to work, 10 minute walk practices. They walk differently. Um, yeah. Walking yoga is key. You know, podcasts can't really do that. Podcasts are great for information, for learning about something, but learning about something isn't learning to do something. That is the central thing we started with, with my own life and Western culture, but it is also the central thing people should be taking away is like, you know, what's the practice you're developing? And I don't mean like I practice with my kids or I practice at work. No, that's where you apply it. So this Asian notion I like of a dojo, a place where you practice. Yeah. Even if it's a small space, you know, like it's 10 minutes a day doing something. Yeah. It's, it's a place you don't have, the consequences of life where you can control the variables, where you can be focused just on working on yourself and not uh, on the consequences of the deal or the marriage or whatever, which is, it's no place to practice. It's a place to apply. So um, you have to practice to apply. I think it's a really important principle. It's like, um, you know, in England don't practice penalties before the world cup and then they expect to be good at them. Yeah. It's um, that's a mistake. So, um, you know, where's your, I would leave listeners with a question like, where do you practice? That's a key one. Yeah. But what's interesting about what you're talking about, this pragmatism, right? That's been a big thing with this conversation is that dojo could be the walk to the tube station. Yeah, because it's not a challenging environment. Assuming you know that route, you're not going to get run over, right? So it's not consequential. You do it every day. So yes, sometimes it's good to have really well-boundary places like yoga studios or meditation retreats. That's really helpful for depth. Uh, But some people can't always do that. You know, like the, the old Buddhist tradition was you're a monk and you meditate four hours a day right? And you live with other monks. Now, if you're not a monk, you better have a more intelligent strategy than just sitting for hours a day and hoping it rubs off. So, um, you know, this is where we need the applications into life. And when we do courses for coaches and trainers, we do quite a lot. We have sort of grading. So we have them do things and then apply them in certain ways. And we build it up gradually, like you would a fitness routine or anything else, like you would learn language. And having an intelligent sort of strategy for that is, it takes a bit more work. You know, you need guidance around that. You need a course for that. It's the course gives guidance, accountability, and community. You can do this. Mm. These three things really help structure yeah. people to do it with and, you know, support when you need it. Right. Um, yeah, so let's end with that then. Where, where, where should people go? You've got the, you know, the embodiment coaching site, right? There's I mean, the conference. Like, where are you going to point people? <laughs> so I've got a podcast. People like podcasts. Just put embodiment into iTunes. You can put embodiment into Amazon for my books. There's one for a general public, one for coaches. Uh, we have courses on embodiment. You'll find them on the internet. There's YouTube. There's, there's a million things out there we do. We're not hard to find. So just put embodiment no. on the internet and look for my beautiful face. Right. And we'll also put some links in the, in the description. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Mark. I brought us in on time. Uh, I really, really appreciate the conversation. And your wealth authenticity. What I'm going to take away from this, number one, is, you know, just, just it seems to me how comfortable in your own skin you are right you will just say how it is you'll 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 speak your mind yeah, yeah no. for me it's like for me talking about embodiment and these embodied practices I've, I've done enough of it personally and with clients that it's not um it's not a weird thing you know it's just like my mum talking about how to make soup yeah big... that's what that's what's coming across you don't seem to have any like like block around oh this might be weird for people that just doesn't seem to be present in the way you speak about it Imagine if I was going to shake your hand and I said, look, this might be creepy and strange, but I'd like to touch you in the hand area. That would just make it more weird. If I just put my yeah. hand 
shake hands or you're not shaking hands right now, then it's fine. All right, so yeah. don't, people, we don't need to. All right, man, I need to go. Richard, this has been good. A good interview. Really nice original questions. I'm glad you didn't say right up front, what is embodiment? So um, <laughs> that, that was really good. I appreciate it, mate. All right. Thanks, Mark. Enjoy the rest of your day down in sunny Brighton. Thank you, sir. Time for rest. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.